I'm TJ Manisterski, and this is the Coaching Project Podcast. Joining me in the Extreme Ownership Series is Dr. Gary Bowman from Propel Health and Human Performance. Gary, it's great to get this series back up and running. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a tough uh, off season, I would say, but today's episode was absolutely rejuvenating. It was killer, and our guest joining us was Mike Wisecup. He is the vice president and Harold Alphon, director of athletics at Colby College, and a retired Navy SEAL officer. And did he ever bring it in this conversation? Oh man, like. Uh... You said it was just basically a master class in leadership from a man who has led in so many different avenues and now is, you know, teaching young adults and a father, husband. I mean, just a just a great human, just a quality guest, my friend. Totally, totally. And how about his bio that I'm going to dive into right now for our listeners? So commander, retired commander, Michael D. Wisecup, United States Navy. He's a member of the VFW Post 10643 and the American Legion Field Allen Post 148. He earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in oceanography from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1998 and completed postgraduate studies in Mumbai, India at the Indian Institute for Technology and Management in 2009. So that's all pretty cool, but here's where it gets awesome. His military operational assignments include SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 5, SEAL Team 8, and Special Boat Team 12, where he deployed multiple times to Iraq, Afghanistan, Africa, and throughout Asia. He also served as the aide-de-camp the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey. From 2015 to 2017, he served as the commanding officer of Special Reconnaissance Team 1 and concluded his military career as the deputy commander of Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force Iraq from 2017 to 18. His personal decorations include the Bronze Star Medal with Valor, Purple Heart, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, Joint Service Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Combat Action Ribbon, and various unit campaign and personal citations. Commander Wisecap retired from the Navy in November 2018 and joined Colby College. Wow. That is impressive. We're just going to jump right into it. Right where we left off last season. Um, this chapter is prioritize and execute. And today we're with Leif and the boys. And he's telling us a story about how him and his team have been taking fire all day long in a small neighborhood in South Central Ramadi. And I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, this neighborhood is like one mile by maybe like a mile and a half. It means it's not like a huge battlefield that we're talking about here. So he goes on to say that these guys have been basically pressed against the floor as close as humanly possible, basically all day, all day long. They felt that they had a good tactical position, but there was a problem that there was only one entry and one exit. So as the battle progressed throughout the course of the day, um, the, uh, the enemy set an IED outside of this door so it was no longer uh, an available exit for them. So 
in what they call a big tough frog fashion, they just whip out a sledgehammer and just bust a hole in a wall to get them onto an adjacent roof. And uh, at that same time, they have to uh, set a, a triggering device on the explosive so that it doesn't just sit there kind of waiting for the next patrol or some unfortunate uh, civilians to walk by. So they're, they're kind of pressed against the clock during this exit strategy. And this is where things kind of go wrong and the prioritize and execute uh, strategy comes into play. So I'm gonna read uh, what happens here from the book. So basically as they're exiting the roof, one of the soldiers falls through the roof onto the street where they've been fighting all day long. So obviously an unexpected turn of events. So Leif says, this was bad dreadfully exposed on a wide open rooftop with no cover. We were completely surrounded by higher tactically superior positions in the heart of an extremely dangerous enemy controlled area. Large numbers of enemy fighters had total freedom of movement here, had attacked us throughout the day on an explosive charge that would set off an IED and throw deadly metal fragments or frag in all directions. Our seal element did not have a full head count so that's crucial, right? They didn't even know that they had all the guys out of the building. So as he's trying to handle the, the gentleman that fell through, he doesn't even know if everyone's out yet. And there's this timed explosive uh, on the front door. So basically he prioritizes and executes. And these are the, the four simple commands that he comes up with for his team. Set security is the first thing he tells him to do. Breacher up. So this basically, these two words sets into action this whole system of guys who run to the front, break down a door, just like clockwork, right? And then they go back to ensure the full head count. They get everyone off the roof. They redo the head count. And then they go get the guy who fell through the roof and, uh, and get out of there. So in a small period of time, a lot of stuff happened. And... Obviously, everyone was well-trained and knew how to breach the door, so on and so forth. But um, it's just uh, obviously a very intense moment. And so the training that he speaks about and, and what he was kind of, you know, educated to do was first to relax, look around, and make a call. He says, even the most competent leaders can be overwhelmed if they try to tackle multiple problems or a number of tasks simultaneously. Leaders must determine the highest priority task and execute. A particularly effective means to help prioritize and execute under pressure is to stay at least two steps ahead of real-time problems through careful contingency planning. And so this is kind of where I'd like to leave it, Mike, because this is kind of the first question I thought I wanted to maybe pose to you and your experience in Fallujah, and I'm obviously no war historian by any stretch of the term, so I uh, request a little latitude, but I was wondering if, you know, there were some just really unique environments that you guys were exposed to that with your previous training of, of previous conflicts or, or you know, other, uh, other areas of your training that maybe you just weren't well prepared for, therefore you just didn't have the opportunity to come up with these contingencies. Because one thing TJ and I kind of talked about is, the best contingency plans come from experience, whether that be success or failure, you know, taking that moment to reflect on how things went and then come up with a contingency plan for when that event likely comes up again. So I guess to kind of rephrase, what things did you run into that you weren't able to contingency for 
Was it a technical uh, issue maybe with a terrain? Was it a tactical change in that type of warfare? Um, you know, what, uh, what kind of things did you run into in your experience? Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story that Leif and, you know, and, and his platoon went through and they've done a good job of distilling it down and, and kind of making it understandable to folks. But you're right, the, you can never anticipate everything. Uh, is even with the most experienced guys that have been doing it for decades, you're always going to come across problems or scenarios or you know, transitions into new scenarios that you just couldn't anticipate. Early on when we started fighting the war, you gotta remember when 9-11 happened, we were still fighting basically, the only guys that I experienced were Vietnam guys and a few that had gone to Granada, um, maybe a little bit in Kosovo, uh, but there wasn't a lot of combat experience in the SEAL teams you know, on 9-11. We were still, using green gear and equipment. We had some, you know, pretty, you know, basic stuff that we were using. We weren't using night vision goggles uh, at that time. Uh, it, we were doing hand and arm signals and patrolling and we were basically being trained by the guys that fought in Vietnam. So we had a lot of Vietnam style tactics. 9-11 hit and all of a sudden we're in a different type of fight. And for those first couple of years, as we went into Afghanistan, as we went into Iraq in 2003, this was a different environment in which we had trained. Uh, we needed different types of gear and equipment. When we went into Fallujah and I had the task unit, the SEAL task unit that uh, supported the Marine operations when we, we took the city in November, 2004, we had not done major urban combat operations to that scale. This was a massive city operation that lasted more than a month. Uh, not including the preparation beforehand and, and some of the cleanup operations afterwards. The Marines hadn't even faced a urban operation like that since Vietnam. I mean, this was a historic moment for them and for us. And there was no way we could have anticipated any of the contingencies that we saw fighting for 30 days straight. Training up to that point, when we did urban training, it was a fairly small a facility a handful of buildings, uh, scenarios that had, you know, one to three hour durations. You come back, you reset, you go back out and do another 30 days straight where you're operating 24 hours a day. Even just that alone, you can't anticipate the wear and tear in your body, uh, how decisions from three days ago are still affecting you uh, because you don't get to reset. You know, you're, you're constantly adapting to the enemy and you're constantly adapting to the, the situation. So what you do do, and I think this is an important call out from what Leif talked about, when he gave those simple orders, it's because they had trained some very basic movements that everyone knew exactly what they meant and could be applied in any scenario. So when you say set security, it's not as simple as just a 360 degree, everyone just points their guns out, like a, you know, like a, like a, you know, like a fighting position. If you are looking for the best tactical place. You're identifying avenues of approach for the enemy. You're looking at risks and vulnerabilities. You're looking at the, the layout of the, the terrain, whether it's a building, whether it's uh, in the woods, it's in the desert. And each person is independently now making a decision on what's the best tactical fighting position for them to support the concept of setting security. And you do that in training in the desert, in the jungle, in the woods, uh, on the beaches, in an urban environment. 
over and over and over again. And so you start to know how to use, how to apply your skills in a different place. And when you come across these unforeseen contingencies, you are, you're able to apply these lessons and people know what to do and adapt to the situation. That's one, one, one piece of it. Breach her up. Everyone knows exactly what it is. Now, they've never rehearsed this scenario, but they know exactly what breach her up knows. And everyone knows what their job is when that happens and what you're going to be doing. So you don't even need to communicate very much. You just say a very simple task and people start to get in line. And so you can, as the years developed, we learned the lessons on the battlefield and we brought them back to our training. And guys like Jocko, who ran our training department on the West Coast, he took every lesson that he learned in Ramadi and he brought it back into training. And every SEAL platoon that went through training basically went through all the scenarios that his platoon and task unit faced in Ramadi. And he just threw it at them so that they could learn what it was like. And then when they went forward and they went into Mosul and we went, you know, and we were still fighting in Afghanistan, all these different places, they weren't facing the same scenarios, but they had a bunch of different um, experiences that they could draw from to anticipate the worst case scenario, to anticipate things that might happen. And, uh, and that's, you know, what Leif talks about, about being able to say two steps ahead. Sometimes you just can't, you just cannot see around the corner. And so you have to get back to your basics. You know, those basic drills that you, that you trained for the last 18 months to build those basic commands that everyone knows them so well, they can adapt and apply them in a new situation. Discussing adaptive performance, right? And, and that's what we want on the field and the ice and everything else too, because you have tactical performance where we have a game plan, but as soon as the puck drops in my case, we have to be able to adapt on the fly and falling back to the simplicity of, of the basics and the training. That's a great point. Well, as you're talking, I can't help but find the correlation to what you must have found yourself in in your you know three or four months into the, the job as the director of athletics and all of a sudden the pandemic hits and there's no manual for that. And it's, you're fighting a different type of fight, as you said. How did you, when, when that happened and you're sitting in the chair and now you've got to lead this group through this, I guess, you know, what did you lean on? And, and more, more important, I guess, what did you do to help your coaches, your student athletes in the college see, you know, you're, you're only looking around one corner at a time. Yeah. And maybe not even being able to look around the corner. You, you might only be able to look down the wall um, at, at best. When, when COVID hit and everyone, it, it came fast, decisions were made quickly, changes to you know our posture on, uh, on campus and people going home. We went from one Monday thinking we were gonna be able to push through, let's just cancel spring break. We can make it, we'll just lock down the, the campus to three days later, everyone be gone by Friday. And it, uh, it happened fast. Now, the beauty of a crisis like that is it's a common crisis for everyone. It has a very 
time sensitive nature and you can get everyone organized directly against this one thing. So the first step is, is identifying what the problem is and over communicating with everyone. What do we got going on here? What do we have to do? So step one, we're going off campus. Your teams are gonna need support. They're gonna need to move out. Everyone's gotta be here. Work with your teams, help with cross campus. You know, let's get these, you know, get everyone home safely. So once everyone gets home, let's circle back up. So that takes now a week. Everyone's focused on their teams, supporting each other. Every team, all the, the athletes get home, those athletes that couldn't get home, how we're gonna uh, take care of them on campus. All right, that was week one. And then as we went along, I started to try to add some kind of scaffolding or some kind of certainty to the uncertainty and break our time or you know, our summer into segments so that they understood what was the focus of attention at this moment. So once we knew all of our students were home, once we had a plan for those that were remaining on campus, it next shifted to them. Hey, right now, the next month, focus on your family, focus on getting your, you know, you know, organize yourself, no work requirements, just, you know, figure out what this new normal looks like for you, how you're going to live, how your kids, you know, are, now are being pulled out of school, how you're going to balance this all, you know, make, you know, understand what this is happening to you. We'll get back together after that. We get through that one month, we, we pull everyone back together. All right now, we need to start thinking about how we're gonna plan for coming back to campus. So let's start the next couple months working on preparation and understanding what the implications of COVID are gonna be for us and what we need to do to start getting ready for next year. And just being very clear and simple simplifying your message on what is the current task at hand allows for teams and individuals to get through a crisis and they can adjust. If everything is thrown at them or they don't know what they're supposed to be working on or you're trying to do three things at once, if we're trying to get the students home, they're trying to figure out their life and we're starting to talk about uh, how we're gonna get back in August, it's just too much. They don't know where to put their mind, where to put their attention. And that overwhelming feeling will make them feel helpless and they'll break. And they actually won't be able to do any of them. And so first step is, is prioritizing what the most immediate task is. Now, sometimes you got to prioritize because of the time sensitive nature of the task. Sometimes time is the driver for your decision making. Sometimes you don't have a time scale. And so it really does become a determination on what's the most important thing to do. And you start to work from a level of importance. And sometimes you prioritize just because you have so many different things happening that you just can't possibly do it. And you, and you start to you know, almost you know, tier the categories of things and communicate what those categories are. And once people see the organization, once they see how things are gonna, uh, what needs to be focused on and when, they can orient, they can start to get their, their mind back in the game and they can actually accomplish the tasks. And so then you fast forward by the end of the summer, you look backwards and you constantly have to do that as well. You kind of look back and go, okay, where have we come? What have we accomplished? Remember month one, this is what we focused on. Month two and three, this is what we did. And now we're at a point where we're getting ready to welcome students back. All right, we're changing phases. 
in the military, we have phases of operations. You have the insertion phase, the infill, <clears throat> actions on the objective, the exfil, and the extract. So you got a five-phase operation most times. And you break your operational planning down into distinct phases. And those are almost these checkpoints that you walk through. So once you've been inserted, the helicopter has inserted you, you go up with all the contingency plannings on that particular phase of the operation. Once the helicopter inserts you and it's gone, you shift now to your infiltration phase of contingencies and plans. And everyone knows, okay, I'm not thinking about the helicopter anymore. Now I'm focused on our foot patrol you know, up the mountain. And then once you get to your set point, you know you're transitioning to the actions on the objective, which might be seizing a building, a hostage rescue, or some kind of assault. And that is its own distinct thing. With COVID and with the department, that's in a sense how I thought about it. What what's phase of the operation are we in? And telling everyone what it is and what is important right now and allowing them to focus on that. And when the, all the concerns and all the other what ifs start come out that had to deal with something that's gonna happen in the future, another phase of the operation, you just say, no, no, we're not talking about that. We don't need to. Let's just focus on just this. And so it was a, a lot of communication, a lot of clear, simple uh, guidance. And then as the summer progressed and people adjusted to the new normal and they got their foundation rebuilt underneath them, we were, add, we were able to add complexity and more work and, uh, and then bring back the students, which added more complexity and more challenges, but we were able to achieve it. The things that we suffered through this, this, this fall and spring with teams being positive and games changing, we wouldn't have been able to handle in March of last year. We were just trying to figure out what this thing COVID actually was. But now we got it. You know, we could do this, you know, with our eyes closed. Student pops positive on a, on a COVID test and they go to, you know, they go into quarantine. Every coach has lived through that now. We're all good with it. It's not a big, it's not a big stressor anymore. We understand what it means. We understand the support and we can execute it pretty quickly. Uh, we could have never done that a year ago, but we built it up uh, and now we, now we can. That's amazing. Uh, in the chapter, Leif literally lays out a list of prioritize and execute and it mirrors your list so incredibly um that was awesome <laughs> i want to add he, he puts on here i think two two categories that are important he says you know don't let focus on one priority car cause target fixation um which you kind of uh, mentioned but then he also talks about uh seek key input from leaders and the team where possible and I'm sure with what you just explained, there was moments where we were blindsided by things left and right. And, and a lot of times we play both a leadership and a subordinate role when we're trying to solve problems. And I think um, we always talk uh, from an atmosphere perspective, you have to have a culture where people are comfortable bringing that stuff to the table. Uh, it can't be a dictatorship where you know, you're just telling everyone what to do and, and blinded to some of these potential problems from subordinates who are you know, in the trenches for, for lack of a better term. So I, I would assume that you know, that was a moment in your career where you really had to be collecting data from as many possible sources as you could to kind of handle everything that was coming at you. 100%. The, uh, like to, you know, bite on to the, the things you just said, target fixation. 
So for our listeners out there, think about you looking through a sniper scope. You know, and you're looking through just this, okay? You just put your hands up, okay? And put your hands, you know, your, your fists together pretty close and just look through, look through the, you know, what your, this pretend scope. And you close your other eye so you can get a really good look at your target. You can't see anything else left or right of you. You lose, com lose complete awareness to everything that's happening around you. If you're a sniper, that's okay. That's your job. If you're a leader, you're failing. That's not good. Because the leader has to see all the things that are happening. So a platoon commander like Leif isn't a sniper. He has a sniper and he has a breacher and he has a point man and he's got a chief. He's got an LPO. He's got all these different skill sets. And he steps back and he organizes the team. I need a sniper here. And getting feedback, what are you seeing? I'm seeing a clear street. EOD operators, what are you seeing? I'm seeing a potential IED threat on our, our primary exit. Okay, what are our options there? People start thinking about them. You, you're asking the questions. The chief who's been doing this for for ages, it probably has the most experience on the team. You know, what do you think? What are, what are our best options? People start giving them, you know, start thinking about different solutions to the problem. And you have to ask that, you have to bring that out. But if you're focused on, I'm only, I'm looking at the sniper, I'm standing next to the sniper, you're gonna lose all perspective or everything else that's happening. And you're only gonna get sniper's input, which is only one part of the, the, the data set. For this, you know, in COVID, when we did this and we started you know, going out, it, we set up, we increased the, the, the number of head coaches meetings and all staff meetings. We went from once a month to we were doing them almost every week and we were just hitting things. So in the beginning, it was, what are you guys hearing from your students? What are the big issues? What are the problems? Football coach might say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. They're struggling with that. Another coach like, hey, I heard the same thing. How did you deal with it? And Another coach might say, I haven't heard that yet from my folks. I need to go ask them if that's a problem. And all of a sudden, you're getting this great sharing. In a sense, each of these coaches are platoon commanders out in the field operating. And you're bringing them back real quick to share lessons learned and information. And then they all go back out and keep working on it. You do that over and over and over again. Now think fast forward. We're getting ready to compete. Teams are coming back together. And we have our first positive case on a team. No other coach had gone through this. We've worked through it with that coach. We provide the support. Bunch of other athletes go into um, isolation as well because our contact trace. We're working through, we haven't done this yet. We get on the back end about a week later, we figure it all out. We pull all the coaches together. Hey coach, share, share what happened, what didn't work for you, what really surprised you. Man, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't know that we needed to provide the food. This, the, I, we need to come up with more structure. They were going crazy in isolation, all these different things. And every other coach, as soon as that happened, we had two more cases on other teams. And those coaches were already one step ahead. By the end of it, we didn't even have to have a meeting when it would happen because everyone knew exactly what to do. And they were already ready for it. And they were able to go to other coaches and say, hey, do you have this problem? And they were able to, to bounce uh, ideas off each other. And we were able to create that environment by forcing you know, the meeting to happen. And, and then 
asking the right questions, pulling out that information. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will add one more, you know, extension to this line of thought. And you think about seeking advice, it, there's, there's facets to that. As a leader, you, it's the, you have to write, ask the right question. When I lived in India and I got my master's degree there and I would ask a yes or no question, I always got the answer yes. And I, but what I was actually getting from my Indian classmates was an acknowledgement of my question. It was a yes, I'm acknowledging your question, but that I was interpreting that as the answer. I had to learn real quick how to ask better questions. And you're only as good as the information that you receive in terms of being able to make decisions. So as a leader, you have to ask the right questions in order to get the right information, in order to be able to make the correct decisions. And if you just rely upon people giving you information unsolicited, you're only gonna get a portion of the truth. Um, we have this saying in, in, in combat, the first report is always wrong. You, you always need to follow it up with more context, a different perspective. Uh, and if you react to that first one, then you're going to rush to failure. You're, you're absolutely going to make the wrong decision. Same time is don't make a decision until you have to. People feel like you need to make a decision because you're the leader and you just got to stand up there. You let the situation develop. Let, let it unfold a little bit. Wait. Tactical patience and decision-making is a, is a hard skill, especially for a new leader. But that's where wisdom comes from. You see these older leaders and they, they generally, their decisions are always pretty accurate. But one, it's based off experience. Two, they also don't rush to make the decision. But young leaders do. And it's just a matter of learning. You can be patient. You can wait. For example, if you're patrolling at night in Afghanistan. Uh, you, everyone's on night vision goggles. You're trying to remain stealthy. You don't want to compromise your unit because that might give, give up the, um, the, the surprise aspect of special operations, which is such a key tenant of what we do for mission success. And the enemy might be out there and they might shoot in your general direction or shoot a couple of rounds basically to draw fire. And if you don't have the tactical patience to assess and, and understand what this threat is and realize it's actually just, they're trying to draw fire, and you react quickly and make a decision to shoot back, you've exposed your fighting position. You've compromised your mission. Sometimes you just got to sit there and go, huh, what's actually happening? Why is this happening? What's necessary? How do I respond? Uh, and if you do that, you're a much, you're a much more skilled leader you're, and you're generally going to get it more right more often because you'll have more information uh, than if you made it I made the decision right off the bat. Does that make sense? I love that idea of tactical patience. And like you said, it's a hard skill. For, for sure, that's a hard skill. Made me think of as I get older and I have kids of my own, when you think about like my four year old will do something and I'll, and I'll know, okay. He's not a bad guy and he doesn't not like me. He's four years old and 
it'll be five and then it'll be six. And he's just, a bit, he's a, he's a little kid. And maybe this is where the wisdom comes in with older leaders that have been successful too, is that, and I'm finding this with my team as I get older and the age gap grows between the players I coach and, and, and how old I am is that sometimes you have to take a step back and, and look at where the people you lead are in their lives. And, you know, in my case, they're 18 to 24 years old. And there's some situations that happen or that something will be said and, and you want to react right away, but I'm becoming better at listening and realizing, taking some tactical patience to know that just let this play out. This will subside or this will, uh, will have a way of working itself out. But that was, that's getting, I can't say it's easy, but I think I get better at that the more I do this. How do you recommend or how do you teach that to a junior leader or, you know, somebody who's you know, a young coach or, or even a captain on a team? So let me, um, let me just first react to something you said, and I think it's, it's an important one, both as a parent and as a coach. Your job is to allow your children and, and players to fail. Like you want them to fail, you really do. And if they don't fail, you're hurting them. This is where the, the, the concept of, you know, lawnmower parents and helicopter parents comes in, you know, trying to protect your, your, your children or your athletes from failure is, is hurting their development. And what you, what you want as a coach and parent is to make sure that their failures aren't catastrophic or high risk failures. And you can manage that part. You can manage a little bit of the environment in which they fail. You can set up the scenarios uh, in um, practice so that they meet their limits, but they don't break. They don't get injured or they don't uh, have a, you know, a character you know, failure that may be unrecoverable. But you want them to fail and you want them to, to, to learn from those mistakes and, and grow from them. That's the best teacher in the world uh, because it, it, it produces stronger character, produces better resilience, it produces better grit, all things that are going to be necessary for them to be successful in life as adults, in which they're going to be facing these things by themselves often. And so, you know, it, when you were talking about it, that's the first thing that came to mind. But to answer your question about how do you teach tactical patience, uh, it happens over time. You know, it, it happens with a coach stepping back and being deliberate in what they're trying to teach, allowing your assistant coach or your captain to make the wrong call and then, you know, pull, pull it back later, you know, after it's over and go, oh, how could we do this better? What's the lessons learned from this? If you could do it again differently, what would you do? Well, gosh, I, 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 did you need to make that decision right now? You, as a coach, even not just a, uh, a coach in the, in the term that we're using right now in terms of being a hockey coach, but a professional coach, a life coach, is asking questions is the key and getting them to gain awareness themselves and not giving them the answer. The more they come up with the answer themselves, the more they're gonna remember it and, 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 and learn from it 
uh, if you provide the answer to them, they won't learn it. And also, if they apply the answer you gave them and it doesn't work, they're going to hold you accountable for it. And so how do you teach tactical patients? You get them, you give them the responsibility, you give them the accountability, and then you come back, even though you know what's going to happen, you allow them to do it. Now, if they're going to make a mistake that could cause injury to life or some significant catastrophic thing, you step in and stop it. You know, you, you can't allow that kind of uh, action to occur. You, 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 put, you, you exert your, your power at that point, but then you circle back up and you explain why. And you lesson learn it every single time. And you, you watch film of great players that are showing tactical patience. Waiting for the play to develop is an incredible thing to do because you know now your players are not just skating and rushing and executing, they're thinking and they're waiting and they're, they're responding. And that's awesome stuff when you see it happen. Sure is, right? Because that's back to that adaptive performance. So if somebody has that tactical patience on their, in the game, they also, like they're showing anticipation, they're showing an understanding of, of the pieces involved. And back to the training, like they, they understand how, how we're supposed to play. So then you know how and when to deviate or how to make decisions within that structure and everybody's staying on the same page. And that's really interesting to relate that to tactical patients. I'm curious, when you're having a difficult conversation with whether it be a subordinate leader or a, a player, a student athlete, and there's a, there's a, there's a, learning, a lesson learned to be had, do you have a favorite question? No, I, 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 I respond to the environment. I, I, I never go into it with a pre-planned set of, this is what I'm going to do. Because it doesn't work, I think, that way. I think uh, you got to listen. You got to understand where they're at. Because the same question or the same feedback to different people will, will, will produce different results. And knowing your people and how they respond, not just how they generally are, but how are they in this moment? You know, what, what's going on in their life at this moment is pretty important. Because you could inadvertently think the individual has thick skin, can receive a lot of feedback because you've done this before, but they might've just gotten some really bad news. They might've not slept well the night before. You know, they might be in a really bad space and just dumping on them or being, you know, tough love might be too much at that moment for them. And you're not gonna get the right results. So you gotta think about what are you trying to accomplish and what's the best method at this moment in time for this person to get that result and being deliberate. I think a lot of leaders will accidentally lead. They'll ask, they just stumble through it. Good leaders just have more experience and they can anticipate things better. They, they already know the most likely outcome. They've seen this scenario before. So they, they can stumble through it with higher degree of success, but young leaders, they don't have enough, so they'll stumble through it. But trying to teach people to be deliberate in their actions and thoughtful in how they approach difficult conversations or providing feedback uh, and having a, a thought process that goes along with it and, and not just winging it, 
that's an important thing to, to try to teach and improve upon. It's interesting concept. I, I appreciate the, the universal truths that we're talking about here because different to you two, I, I work in a one-on-one -on -one setting and I feel like I have a greater opportunity to establish an environment to tease out those unique conversations. How do I, you know, maybe uh, sculpt my message to really, you know, hit that individual where I'm always impressed, TJ, when you talk about how you create that environment in your team, where you schedule those moments to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You know, maybe it's not a full-blown sit down, but it's just a few minutes to really try to, you know, take the temperature of, of that individual and, and kind of get some perspective. Um, Mike, obviously you're at, at an even higher level as far as, you know, um, subordinates that you need to, to kind of get a feel for. How have you transitioned into that? I know obviously you've got a lot of experience. Your resume is very impressive, but this is still a relatively new position for you. Um, how are you navigating that stuff and creating that environment with, uh, within your team? Yeah, it's, this is easily one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, Fallujah was a cakewalk compared to this. There's, uh, I, there's just, it's complicated. It's, I cannot see around the corners right now. Yeah, you know, both from an industry level of being new to athletics and the NCAA and all that, I'm still learning the basics. The, the norms that coaches have, have and their standards and their expectations are all new to me. Their, what drives them, their motivating factors are different for each of them. Some are here for the purity of coaching essence of it. This is, this is it. Like that's all they're, they're after. Some are looking for just to be a champion, you know, to be a win loss record, to, to get a medal. Some are looking for their time here to, to make them more competitive for a D one job. You, some want to transition to administration. Some aren't sure what they want to do. Uh, some, or need more salary. You know, there's just different driving motivator factors for each one of them. Whereas in the SEAL teams and in the military, it was a lot more homogeneous in terms of the motivating factor. And we also had a very common mission. We knew that we were gonna assault this building or we were gonna go on this operation. Everyone was working on that. And here we have common mission, which is to develop and educate our students and prepare them for life after college. And our contribution to the college's mission is to do, to do that development education through sports and competition, where we build out teamwork, decision-making skills, grit, character, all these different facets that when you augment that with a really great, strong academic experience, we're producing some amazing citizens that are gonna be successful. So we had that common mission, but each one of the coaches doesn't need to support each other to do that. Every program is independent of each other. They're not sharing resources. They're accomplishing that same mission, but they don't have to do it together. And that's wildly different than my experiences. And so it's been, it's been tough to learn all this. And it was also tough to, to transition into this position during COVID because I can't quite diagnose the symptoms whether they're symptoms of problems because of COVID and therefore they're temporary and they won't 
persist or whether they're symptoms of a deeper problem that needs to be addressed that I need to fix now. Because if you react to the first scenario and it's a COVID specific problem, then a year from now, I'm having to refix it again because I've just made a change to something that was just a temporary situational based problem. And trying to figure out which one's which is enormously difficult. All I can do right now is be consistent in my approach, be fully committed and, and that, let them know that I am all in on this, uh, be accessible in how they need to, to, to get to me, um, to ask questions, for me to be, uh, when I receive feedback or bad news, to be uh, fair in how I receive it, to respect them as coaches and respect their knowledge and seek their advice and be open to change when when I propose an idea, collaborating with them, and I get the feedback that goes, okay, well, maybe that's not a good idea. I just thought it was. Uh, and showing that humility that I don't have the answers, that I'm going to work through this. But I think from what they need uh, in me right now is a stable, strong presence uh, that, that, that they can rely upon. And the rest of this will come over time. And as I get smarter, I'll be able to make better decisions. As I, as I start to see around corners, I'll be able to start to anticipate things. And that will make their life and their, and their ability to do their job even better. Um, but you know, I, I spend as much time as I can in the office. You know, maybe my wife's not too keen on that, but you know, I, I do. Uh, presence matters during crisis. Presence matters when people don't know who you are. You have to make yourself available. You can't lock yourself away. Uh, and so that's what I've been focusing on in the short term. And as I'm learning stuff, I'm starting to add a little bit of structure to how I want to do business. I didn't make a lot of decisions when I came in. I only made decisions on things that I thought I had to make. I really kicked the can on a lot of stuff. There's many things that we do that I'm not a big fan of, but I had to assume, okay, there's a reason that we did it this way. And let me see why before I come in here with my outsider's perspective to make a change that because I don't understand the complexity of the actual problem. Uh, and I'm glad I did that. I probably did make some decisions that now I regret that I moved out a little too fast on, but I thought they were the right things at the time. But I'm, I'm also really open to, to changing my mind. It's, uh, and if, if there's a better way of doing it, we'll do it. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, and I've got no, my ego is not attached to my power, my position or my decisions. You know, at the end of the day, I'm here to make sure that my coaches are able to do their job the best way they can because they're the one fighting the fight. They're the one out there actually running the operations. And they're the ones that are actually going to make the difference on whether our students are prepared, not me. That's outstanding. The book, Extreme Ownership, takes place in Ramadi, Jocko's time there. And you fought in Fallujah leading up to Ramadi. I think a great way to bookend our conversation here would be if you could help us understand some of the, the challenges that were going on in Fallujah, your experience there, and how did that directly lead to Ramadi? And then another layer to this is 
we've been talking about the layering of experience. So what came out of your time there that directly helped Jocko and his, his time in Ramadi? Yeah. Um, so we were offset by about two years. So Fallujah was 2004, Ramadi was 2006. And if from a geographic standpoint, you've got Baghdad, and then you got the Euphrates River that goes up um, to the northwest. And along that river are major towns. And so as Baghdad became more secure, then the goal was to start increase the security bubble, you know, out, away from Baghdad. And what that meant was that we started doing a lot more operations up the river and we just were going town by town, providing security, reestablishing government services. But this particular area was the Al-Anbar province, which was an insurgent um, hotbed. They had been the majority in the previous government and now they, were, they weren't. And so they weren't being represented. They felt like they were need to fight back. It's also where ISIS gained a lot of their foothold uh, recently. And so there's a bit of a disenfranchisement, you know, of that, that uh, population from the central government of Iraq. And so there was a lot, lot of fighting, a lot of activity, and it was affecting Baghdad's ability to uh, be able to have fair elections, be able to institute a government and be able to recover from the, the, the initial phases of the war. So in 2000. Three, March 2003, that's when we did the big invasion and SEAL operations at that time were taking over the oil platforms in the Gulf, uh, seizing Basra, where a lot of the oil uh, nodes were, and uh, supporting the, the main element of Army and Marines uh, units on their way to uh, Baghdad. A year later then, we've got a lot of security and we've stabilized in a lot of different fixed positions around the country uh, with our military um, our main military maneuver elements. Fallujah, though, was one of the one of the places that was uh, uh, generating a lot of attacks into Baghdad, and so we know that we needed to move up the river and start take these towns and secure them. So in April of 2004, that was the first Battle of Fallujah, and that coincided with the four Blackwater security uh, operators uh, being hung and burnt alive. Um, in some cases. Uh, from the, the bridge uh, in Fallujah. And the, uh, their first battle achieved some limited success, but it became apparent that we needed to seize the entire city and we need to clear through it. So over the next six months, the, uh, the Marines in lead with the army and support and uh, started to basically uh, cordon off uh, the, uh, the city and set the conditions for us to do a full-scale uh, invasion. At that moment, uh, just before the operation was to kick off, we got a request to the Special Operations Headquarters for snipers and uh, combat air controllers, what we call JTACs, and to be provided and augment the Marine and Army forces that were going to clear the city. So I got the task to form up a, a sniper and JTAC element, about 30 strong, and that included uh, some, some guys that you might have heard of, Chris Kyle. Um, uh, our um, American sniper, uh, he did some amazing work, earned a silver star uh, during the operations in Fallujah. Just, just true American hero. You know what he did was just uh, his stories just are legendary. But we went out there, and uh, 
I was, these were not all my guys. I had guys from SEAL Team 3, SEAL Team 8, SDV Team uh, 2, uh, 1. Uh, I was part of SEAL Team 8, and I had so this mishmash of just snipers and JTAC. It wasn't a traditional SEAL platoon. And I quickly figured out, one, the request for our support was because of our skill set. And we couldn't stay as one consolidated fighting unit. We had to uh, decentralize our command and push people out into a variety of different places. So I came into that environment as a lieutenant with about eight years in the military. And I'm working with colonels of the regimental combat teams who've got 30 years and, <laughs> and walking through what I was gonna do and how, and the first reaction I got was, you know, from these Marines mostly were like, oh, you think you're just gonna come in here to save the day and do your own thing? Like, no, it's not how we operate. I certainly can't provide my own support. We can only accomplish our sniper and JTAC capabilities, but we're gonna need external security. We're gonna need food. We're gonna need mobility. We didn't have that organic to, our, to us. So, so here are my guys, they work for you now. You employ them, you know what you need to. This is the best way to employ us. And I talked through it and we figured it out. And just that simple act, uh, the, the regimental combat team one colonel was like, all right, you're good. We can do this. You know, coming into this scenario, that was our first big operation where we were working with conventional forces like that. And as a result, we were far more effective. We were able to support their mission, which was the main objective. We were not gonna win Fallujah with 30 SEAL snipers and JTAC. We, but when it came down to it, the night before the operation, uh, everything was set. We're getting ready to invade. And we were basically doing a north to south approach through the city. We were all lined up online, battalions of Marines and army, tanks, rear security of new Iraqi security forces that were just being trained to, to be an Iraqi army for the first time they were getting into combat. And uh, it poured down with rain and we just got drenched and the cloud cover was at like a thousand foot and it was just a mess. Well, our conventional air controllers, in order for them to prosecute a target or drop a building or you know, be able to hit an insurgent location, you have to have, the plane had to have eyes on the objective. Well, our planes couldn't see through the cloud cover, but the SEAL and special operator air controllers had advanced equipment and capabilities that allowed us to operate in that environment and still drop the buildings to do this stuff because of the computers and the, the types of um, uh, ways we do our, 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 our terminal control. And all of a sudden our JTACs went from working at company levels and where we had our snipers on bed and the battalion commanders were pulling up into their headquarters because they had no capability like that. And so they were used, every one of the guys adjusted to it. They supported their conventional commanders and whatever they needed. They were in some cases, like in Chris Kyle's, I mean, he's dragging, you know, uh, Marines have been shot. He's, he's stepping into the line of fire to save guys' lives. We were there as teammates. We weren't there as our own force. And we accomplished the mission after 30 days. And then another SEAL unit came in and joined up another group of conventional forces that moved further up the river. And eventually two years later, we're in Ramadi. And I set the conditions like this because um, I do believe that you know, success begets success. And our relationship with, their, with our conventional forces 
who were the main element. We were an enabling element to them to be able to uh, advance the mission. Uh, if we had come in with, this is our job, we're doing it our way, I don't think anyone would want to work with us anymore. You know, that's, they wouldn't see us as good teammates. And so the next big mission, are they going to actually request our forces again? Maybe not. They had such a bad experience the last time. You know, these prima donna special operators coming in thinking they know what's, you know, they're going to solve everything. Um, no, it, it, took a, it took an act of humility and recognition of what the, what the mission was and what our role on the team was. And I think because of that, we were really successful in Fallujah. You know, we provided, I think, a, a, a tactical advantage. I think we saved a lot of American lives in the process. And then that built on for another force to come in behind me and to continue that effort. And eventually led to where Jocko's task unit was engaged in a, as a structured special task, you know, special operations task force with their own organic support and their ability to work with those conventional forces that maybe some of them had worked with me in Fallujah. And there was trust built. There was an understanding of how to do this. And they were able to accomplish their mission as well. And uh, it was, it's good stuff. You know, I like, like to think that, you know, as part of a chain of events that, you know, allowed us to be successful in Iraq and allowed our, our special operations units to be respected. That's amazing. I, you know, I have to flip the, uh, flip the conversation real quick as we start to wrap up. I, I'd hate not to ask you this, but I know you've been exposed to probably some really cool high performance stuff uh, through your days, whether that be in the military or just, you know, ancillary sports things. Anything that you are trying to currently implement? I mean, I'm sure you probably had a little bit of a game plan and COVID may have, uh, you know, disrupted that, but anything cool coming down the, uh, the pike for you guys from an athletic performance perspective, whether that be athlete monitoring or, or cool toys you're adding to, uh, to your team? Absolutely. One of my favorite things I learned in the military was the, the, uh, was the value of a cross-functional team. And uh, if you have a team of quarterbacks, you're not going to win any football games. You need a bunch of different skills. You need diversity of thought, experience, expertise, background. I'm a big believer in diversity. I think it just, you get such a better product um, when you have a more diverse team on every level. Uh, and one of the things that I did when I came to Colby, and even before I took the athletic director job, was working with the athletic department on this principle of forming a cross-functional team in which most people may know it as human performance. In the SEAL teams, we call it the human performance program. We are calling it peak performance, which is a common you know, name out there. There's a lot of schools that are doing this. The Olympic teams use this, some professional teams use this. But in essence, it was to take the different siloed departments of strength and conditioning, athletic trainers, uh, sports psychology, counseling services, nutritionists, and instead of them working as individual elements within the department, they are now one division, one department. They work together, they live together, and then they're overseen by uh, a, a performance uh, uh, specialist, his name's Dr. Lloyd Beckett. We've been with the Brooklyn Nets. He spent some time in Marine Special Operations Command as well doing this. And we are instituting our peak performance program 
Uh, right now, we have 50% of our 32 teams involved in it directly. And the goal is to grow it so it's supporting all 32 teams, which is uncommon. Uh, most, most schools don't have this many programs. Uh, Division three schools aren't doing this at all. You're seeing it in limited ways at the division one level. And the special sauce here, there's two things. One is everyone is talking at the same time about customized approaches for our individual athletes and for our teams. So the, the strength and condition coach is not making decisions on his, uh, his workout for the week, absent of the athletic training staff or absent of our sports psychologist who's working on performance or absent of our counselor who's working on some mental health issues or our nutritionist who's working through some, some maybe eating disorders. And so they're all thinking about this together and they're sharing insights and they're learning from each other. And so now the strength and conditioning coaches program is more tailored, more specific. It's gonna be more effective. It's gonna be less dangerous. You know, we're gonna buy down risk potentially because he's gonna be more aware of where the students are and what's going on. And then the other special sauce is the incorporation of data collection and, and the sports science aspect. That's the game changer. So if you're a coach, how do we create the right dashboard to collect all this information, their urine color, their sleep schedule, their stress level with academics, their force plate testing to be able to recognize whether we've got a developing fatigue or an injury coming on. All this heart rate monitoring into a way, there's so much data out there. You can't possibly understand it if you don't have a clear way of making sense of it in which it can inform a coach's decision and be able to adjust practices and schedules. And so that sports science piece that we've added to it to round out peak performance now allows coaches to be able to have a dashboard of information. They're able to track their team through the season. They're able to look and see where they need them to peak. Every component of peak performance then is, is adjusting in order to make sure that they optimize the performance of that team at the right time. And it's informing coaches' ability to, uh, to conduct high-risk evolutions. If you're a football team, you're going to go with full contact but if you look at your dashboard and realize that your quarterback and your center and a few other key components are, are you know, haven't slept well, they've had a high academic load, maybe their, their urine color is pretty high, so that means they're, they're not uh, hydrated appropriately, and you go into a high-risk situation, you're increasing the risk of, of someone getting injured. So maybe you shift. If you're seeing your performance, your team fatigue over time and your heart rates are showing kind of just a... a an overexertion, and you got to, and you're coming into the end of this season, you're not going to be postured well for your conference championship. So I got to back off the intensity. My gut tells me we need to play a little harder, but the data is telling me I got to do this smarter. And that is, I think, going to be a game changer for us. And it was a game changer in the SEAL teams, in special operations, when we started doing human performance programming wasn't just about going and doing more pull-ups and running harder and, and flipping more tires. It was, you had to think about the whole development of you as a, as a professional athlete so that you could sustain long combat operations and come back and quickly recover from, a, from any injuries, quickly recover from the fatigue of the operations and be able to be operational again quicker. If you're not, then what you end up having is 
we can't keep up the op tempo, the operational tempo that the nation needed from us in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And we were, we were turning it over fast. The human performance program allowed us to be able to be at our op optimal best, come back, recover quickly and get back employed. But that was all deliberate and it was based off of science. It was based off of you know experts in the field that knew how to do this. And bringing that to Division Three program and what we're doing here at Colby College, I think it's going to make it be a game changer. Gary, I know you must have a follow-up question or a thought because Mike was just right down your alley with all that stuff. Uh, of course, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> um, anything in particular, you know, uh, that has been super helpful for you sitting on that 10,000 foot perch, you know, I mean, I appreciate that you've got to trickle that information down. You really want to empower your coaches, but back to what we've been talking about all, all day here is you're way high up there on the, uh, the viewpoint, if you will, maybe looking through almost binoculars, trying to, to gather info, but yet trying to implement something that has so much power but requires such a great degree of individual buy-in. You know, I like, like I said, for me, I can get my, my clients to, to get some HRV numbers for me in the morning. I can get them to do velocity numbers on the bar and really get a good sense of it. I, doing that for 35 teams, I mean, I've consulted with the college in the NAIA who has a similar situation. They have gaming sports, they have shooting sports. I mean, you name it, they have sports in every category. And I appreciate that that's a lot to manage. So um, has there been a human performance tool on your end that you either brought into Colby or that you like to use personally that has been really informative on that, you know, recovery, be ready to, to compete, keep up the tempo uh, conversation? Yeah, I, there's a lot of commercial off-the-shelf technology out there. There's a lot of different wearable devices. There's a lot of different pieces. Uh, in my experience and what I'm gathering as I even learn more about this environment is that there's not going to be one that works for us in exactly the way that we need it. We're going to need to customize our own. We're going to need to figure out our own. And that gets to really paying attention to what our coaches need. And one wearable device might give you 60% solution and another type of athlete management software might give you a 90%, but they don't always overlap. The dashboard might not be what that coach wants. And then you got a lot of coaches that frankly, they've been doing this a long time and they, man, it's all about my gut. I know this. Like, all right. I, I agree with you. Like experience, you, you've seen a lot of things and your gut is, is probably pretty close to being right. But let's be open-minded with this. Let's see what else is out there. Let's see if, your gut correlates with the data. You know, let's just see what happens and helping them transition. There's other ones, you can go to a team and say, hey, man, you end the last season, just exhausted. Everyone was sick. Look at the data. You see where this was happening? Yeah, if we had just tweaked it here, this wouldn't have happened. And that coach like, can you tell me that so that I don't fall into this trap again? Yes, I'm in, I'm on board. And then, Students nowadays love getting information. They love it. And when they see the effects of alcohol on their performance, and it's not just the day after, 
it's three or four days later, and how it sets you on this weird cycle and this horrible sleep pattern. And they, if they really truly wanna be good, then getting that information, they'll start to curb their own behaviors. And so there's, a, I kind of talked about a bunch of different things. You pull it together. The, the key here is that you need to, you need to develop a, a, a process in which you get some early adopters that you give a high quality of service to that then spread the message. And then you wait for those late adopters, those guys that are like, hey, this is my gut. They'll come around, but they'll come around because their students will actually be like, hey, that team's getting this amazing support. They're getting all this stuff. Why can't we get that? Ah, I don't really believe it. Well, let's give it a shot. And as they see those teams start to go to nationals and go to the postseason, they'll start, they'll start figuring it out pretty quick. And I, I know this works. And that's why it's easy for me to sit at the 10,000 foot level and go, trust it. Trust me, guys. And then there's books and there's Olympic, you know, programs and there's professional teams out there that are doing this. Like we're not, what we're doing isn't uh, revolutionary. It's evolutionary. And this is going to be the way of athletics and sports going forward because we have better technology. It's easier to collect data and easily more easy to interpret it. And then coaches need to know and be informed on how to apply that. So it's, this is a this is a growing field, uh, and it's we're just we're just beginning on uh, really optimizing what this is, uh, and I think it's it's really exciting at a Division three level. You know, this is I needed some way to compete better against the teams in my conference that are just powerhouses. They're just getting talent. I needed to figure out a way to change that. So now I need to find people that want to come and want to and know that they can come to a program that's going to meet their potential, that they're gonna get optimized. So I like to say that you're not joining a team here at Colby, you're joining a program. And we're gonna, we're gonna give you leadership training and we're gonna give you peak performance and we're gonna, we're gonna give you the best athletic facilities in the country. And you'll be able to meet your potential. And, and one day we're gonna, be, we're gonna be IM League Directors Cup champions across the board. You know, Colby's gonna be a feared name across the country. You come play Colby, you're going to get kicked. That's awesome. Yeah. How about a conversation a little bit swept under the rug that we don't talk about too much, but coaches' health, right? I mean, I know uh, it's a, an important topic in the CEO space. I mean, now it's a really big trend. Take care of your top performers, you know, executive exams, making sure these guys are healthy because their value to the company is invaluable to some degree. Um, is that on your radar right now? Making sure your coaches are, are living the lifestyle as well, not just uh, doing as they preach to their athletes? It is. Um, and we are definitely running on fumes. It's been a hard year. We're exhausted, every one of us. And frankly, right now, we just need to get away from each other and get some space and take a breath and just get away from the environment. So we're ending that, you know, our graduations uh, coming up in the next, this weekend. And yeah, I, I, I don't want to see anyone for a month. Uh, I just want everyone to go away. Uh, I need my own <laughs> space as well. But uh, the important thing here is, is uh, we have to reset and rebalance ourselves out of this. Everyone uh, burned a lot of 
extra energy and emotional uh, energy uh, this year. And a lot of people are burnt out and uh, that's not a healthy way to, to progress. This was an extraordinary set of circumstances that required it. And I couldn't be more proud of our coaches for the way they stepped up and the way they dug really deep, uh, even balancing their own personal lives and all the challenges that were happening, you know, outside of uh, the practice field of the locker room. Uh, but they were able to separate that and, and provide the, the dedicated attention to their athletes and their programs. But we need to rebalance and, and reset before we come into next year, uh, because it was an unhealthy year. Uh, everyone's stress and anxiety was too high. And there wasn't really an easy way to manage that. Uh, the good news is that we all were facing it at the same time. So there was a shared misery. You know, misery does love company. And we were able to share that misery together. And as a, as a result, we were able to uh, reflect on it. And it wasn't as much of a burden for any one person because we were all sharing the burden together. And we were all going through it the same way. And we were all struggling in the same place. And uh, I liked to think that we were forgiving of each other when we were short or when we were frustrated uh, because we all knew that it was, you know, I'm going to forgive this guy this time because tomorrow it's going to be my turn and I'm going to need their, their forgiveness. And that helped a lot to be able to, to, to manage it. But it is absolutely on my radar. Uh, my job is to make sure that the coaches are balanced, that they're healthy and they're resourced and able to do their job. I'm not the student guy. That's their job. You know, there's a layer removed. So I'm, my team is the coaches. I focus on them. And, uh, and they focus then on return in, on, on the students and providing that. And even peak performance. Peak performance is about trying to make their life better, easier. The leadership academy and the training is to make, to give them resources and tools by, uh, by hiring and contracting services for uh, recruiting and getting better software is to make that, to give them resources to make their life more efficient and easier to execute. Everything I do here every day is about that and with that in mind. And uh, I think it's a vital thing. I think we oftentimes leaders get into positions of authority uh, or, or power uh, because they were good at the previous job and that doesn't make them good leaders. You know, they were great financial analysts and now, in now they're in charge of a team of financial analysts. Great. You know how to read a spreadsheet and you know how to invest appropriately, but do you know how to manage the motivation and output of your, of your, uh, of, of your team? Probably never had to do that before. And so what you end up having is people that just worked hard and they think, okay, I just got to work hard. And then their subordinates get burnt out and they get, you know, and then, and things don't work out well. The fact that we're, people are starting to realize that and recognize that's an important part of, uh, of leadership is, is good, but we've still got a long way to go uh, as people are trying to chase balance sheets and profits and, and different types of margins. That's a dog, dog world. Uh, fortunately, I'm in the business of developing character and, uh, and, uh, and, and not having to make a profit. Mike, that's amazing. And I just want to really thank you for your time today and, and joining Gary and myself. And what an awesome conversation. My head is honestly spinning with all the different things that I want to go back and listen to and think about. And uh, it's just been an, an honor and a, and a privilege. And thank you for coming on.
Yeah, thanks, TJ. It was, it was a pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. I love talking about this kind of stuff. I share as much as I can. Take it for what it's worth. It doesn't always work. You know, it's my experiences. It's what I've learned along the way. It doesn't work for everyone, but uh, if it helps one person, you know, then then today was a good day. It was, it was, it was worth being alive. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. It was a great day.